Hello, and welcome to the Great War Podcast, an in-depth look at the origins, battles, and consequences of the First World War. Episode 63, Leviathans. By the late summer of 1916, the Central Powers found their hopes of achieving victory that year had vanished. Sustained losses in the fields and increasing unrest on the home front meant 1916 would close out on a depressing note. No amount of saber-rattling could deny the truth. The Allies had regained the upper hand. Although the success of the general offensive was far from certain, maximum pressure on western and eastern fronts had to be sustained to ensure momentum was carried into the new year. In the east, the Bruslav offensive was nearing the end of its tether, but news of Romania's declaration offered a glimmer of hope. On the Western Front, the steel rains of the Meuse and Somme continued to fall. At Verdun, Hindenburg ordered the cessation of all further operations, thus ending an eight-month offensive in which 596,000 French and German soldiers had become casualties. Meanwhile, 280 kilometers to the west, Douglas Haig and the British 4th Army looked to prepare their next big push on the Somme. With the rainy season approaching, Haig believed the campaign was reaching its climax. Intelligence reports indicated enemy morale was at an all-time low, and Haig wanted to deliver a strong attack by the middle of September, using fresh forces and all available resources. When we last left the Somme battlefields, the Australians had capped off a month-long struggle over the Posier Ridge, giving British forces a toehold atop this important plateau. With the high ground along the albert bapaume Road now secure, 4th Army spent most of August solidifying their lines along the Byzantine Ridge. For the infantry, it was a long, miserable grapple for woods and villages, with the fighting concentrated near Posier, Delville Wood, and Highwood. In September, the Axis shifted east to Jinchi Guillemont, allowing Anglo-French forces to establish a new boundary near Comble. In the words of historian William Philpot, the Somme assumed its own metallic rhythm, as the two adversaries smashed into each other like two huge pneumatic hammers. The once splendid Picardy countryside was transformed into a wasteland of ruined farmers' fields, scummy water-filled shellholes, and acres of unburied corpses. Despite the horrid conditions, morale remained high. Men looked forward to a crack at Fritz, and with reports of mass German surrender, there was hope the campaign was nearing its zenith. By August's end, British losses had mounted to a staggering 251,000 men. On the political side, military and government officials continued their Cold War. By early August, a clearer picture of what transpired in July had formed. William Robertson, chief of the Imperial General Staff, found that criticism of the high casualties and limited progress was mounting. David Lloyd George and Winston Churchill stepped up their war of words against army leadership. On August 1st, Churchill presented a memorandum to the War Committee, in which he judged the first weeks of the campaign had been a disaster. The committee threatened to summon Haig home to present his case for continuing the operation, prompting Robertson to step in and defend the commander-in-chief. That same evening, Robertson presented a full report to the committee, in which he put the psalm in its wider context, arguing, quote, 
We are now engaged in quite a new kind of warfare, and that decisive results cannot be expected in 24 hours or 24 days, and that relentless pressure on all fronts was the proper course to pursue, and was promising good results by winter. End quote. Robertson warned against impatience, and that any change in direction could not come without severe harm to the coalition or Britain's international standing. In short, there were no simple, effective alternatives for progressing the offensive. As Robertson reminded the assembled leaders, quote, Our policy is offensive on the Western Front, and therefore defensive everywhere else. End quote. Britain could ill afford a change in strategy, and with that, Haig planned to renew the offensive by the middle of September, with all resources at his disposal. Encouraged by Romania's entry into the war, the Western Allies looked to coordinate their efforts once again. Ferdinand Foch had planned a massive two-pronged assault for September 12th, with Fayol's 6th Army attacking in the direction of Comble. The British would then follow up three days later on the 15th. Ever the optimist, Haig foresaw this battle as potentially decisive, with 4th and Reserve Armies capturing the German positions between Flair and Corselet. Haig hoped this would allow his cavalry to strike as far as Bapaume. Unlike the battles for Cantelmaison, Mametz Wood, or Posier, which were localized engagements involving no more than two or three divisions apiece, the Battle of Flair Corselet would be a massive setpiece, something akin to what we saw on July 1st or 14th. Haig described it as, quote, a bold and vigorous all-arms exploitation of disorder, end quote. A total of five corps, 12 infantry, and five cavalry divisions were poised to go into action. In terms of attack frontage, it would be the largest set piece since July the 1st. The main advance would take place on a 9km front, centered between the villages of Corselet and Flair, with Rawlinson's 4th Army leading the charge. 4th Army deployed three corps themselves, the 3rd, 15th, and 14th Corps left to right, along with nine fresh divisions, including the newly arrived New Zealand Division at Flair. To assist the main assault, Go's reserve army would deploy two additional corps astride and north of the main road. Fighting alongside the New Zealanders, but at the opposite end of the front, was another Commonwealth force, the Canadian Corps, which had two responsibilities, to storm the village of Corselet and assist in a feint attack against the vaunted Tiepfel Ridge. For the Germans, Corselet was of considerable significance. Its reinforced sugar factory held large reservoirs of water, which could be pumped throughout the front line. With Hindenburg and Ludendorff now running the show, anxieties were at an all-time high. On September 5th, the new command duo visited the Western Front for the very first time, and held a military conference in Cambrai two days later. Having grown accustomed to fighting the untrained Russian masses in the east, neither man was prepared for what awaited him. Ludendorff would later admit, quote, The mental picture of the fighting had to be painted a shade darker in view of what I had just heard. End quote. For the Germans, their immediate concern was supply and reinforcement. Some units had been in the firing line since before July 1st. Barrels and artillery guns had worn out, and shell stocks were desperately low. 
As a temporary solution, Hindenburg proposed reducing the number of troops manning the front line. Ludendorff echoed this, arguing that the deep dugouts and cellars had reduced the infantry's prowess. In other words, German troops had forgotten their training, and had become too dependent on defensive fortifications. To be clear, they were not saying their troops had become lazy, simply that they were not using their talents to the best of their abilities. Ludendorff argued, the infantry had come to prefer grenades and other short-range weapons over their rifles. While these were better alternatives for trench warfare, it was allowing too many enemy soldiers to cross no man's land, and in a close-range firefight, the Allies always won due to their overwhelming numbers. Ludendorff later wrote, quote, The infantry soldier had forgotten his shooting through the use of grenades. He had to relearn it. The strength of the hostile infantry had been greatly increased by their war machine. We, on the other hand, had still to rely chiefly on our men. End quote. Ludendorff had touched on something that would influence how the German army would fight in 1917, and we'll circle back to what that was a little further down the road. For now, Ludendorff's comment would prove oddly prophetic. Unbeknownst to the Germans, and to about 99% of Anglo-French soldiers, Haig was looking to use the Battle of Flair Corselette as a staging area for another addition to the Allied war machine. In early 1915, the War Committee began research into developing a new type of vehicle that could help protect the infantry. One of the most promising designs came from Lieutenant Colonel Ernest Swinton, a Royal Engineer Staff Officer and former journalist. Having observed that the Royal Artillery used American-built agricultural tractors to haul their guns, Swinton got the idea of constructing a new type of armored vehicle, one which ran on Caterpillar tracks making it easier to navigate the hummocky, trench-scoured battlefield. Swinton forwarded his plans to his superiors, but after some deliberation, his plans were deemed too outlandish and were sentenced to the dust heap. Fortunately, then First Lord of the Admiralty, Winston Churchill, discovered the document and breathed new life into the project. It is rather ironic that it was the Royal Navy, not the Army, who first saw value in this new weapon. Further experiments took place throughout the winter of 1915, and eventually two prototypes of different shapes were produced. The rectangular-shaped Little Willie and the rhombus-shaped Big Willie, named after the Kaiser and Crown Prince. A successful field demonstration took place in early 1916, which Haig, Lloyd George, Churchill, and King George V attended. Haig was impressed and ordered 150 of these new vehicles. The patent was then sold to an agricultural company which began work immediately. By April 1916, 50 of these new vehicles were shipped to France, under the guise of being portable water cisterns, or tanks. The name stuck, and henceforth, the new vehicles were known as such. Now I don't want to go into a detailed history about the tank's development. Armored warfare is a whole other field on its own, and I don't want to risk insulting any armor enthusiasts out there. But let it be known that the first tanks to emerge in 1916 were a far cry from their famous cousins of the Second World War. There was no First World War equivalent to the Tiger, T-34, or Sherman. In fact, when the first tanks arrived on the Western Front, they were viewed with curiosity and outright indifference. 
The Mark I tank was slow, mechanically unreliable, and a real pain in the ass to work with. Two variations of the Mark I were built, male and female. The males weighed 28 tons and were armed with two 6-pound naval guns fitted into sponsons, while the female was armed with machine guns weighed in at 27.5 tons. Both were operated by a crew of eight men, who worked inside a tin can with little visibility or ventilation. With an average speed of 2 kilometers per hour, the Mark I was incapable of sustained pursuit, namely because its operators could only stay in the cabin for a limited amount of time. Interior temperatures reached higher than 40 degrees Celsius, and crews often passed out from inhaling the petrol fumes which filled the cabin. None of the tanks had radios, and the noise produced by their primitive engines meant communication could only be passed with hand signals or written on the interior walls in chalk. Being a tank operator in 1916 was not for the faint of heart, let me tell you. Despite their limitations, Douglas Haig saw potential in the tank. Although the field trials had taken place on a large open surface in England, the supposed technophobe ordered 150 tanks to be ready in time for the Somme. A shortage of trained crews and usual construction bottlenecks meant Haig had only 50 combat-ready tanks by the summer of 1916. Haig's determination to use the tanks at Flair Corselet remains a sticking point for many of his critics. After the war, Winston Churchill and David Lloyd George maintained that Haig used the tanks too early, thus exposing their secret and allowing the Germans to develop effective countermeasures. This line of thinking has led to a popular misconception, supported by the idea that Haig should have delayed before more tanks were available. This argument, however, does not hold up to close scrutiny. As I mentioned earlier, Haig believed the coming battle was likely to be the crowning effort of the year, and he argued against the folly of failing to use every means at his disposal. Regarding tanks, Haig commented on August the 22nd, quote, I hope and think they will add very greatly to the prospects of success and to the extent of it. End quote. Furthermore, the tank was an untested weapon, and Haig wanted to see how they would fare before more resources were poured into their development. It would have been grossly irresponsible to divert time and energy into further construction before they had been tested. One can easily imagine the uproar if millions of tax dollars were spent on a weapon that turned out to be useless. Although tank employment would be the most innovative feature of the assault, the operational scheme did not revolve around them. Remember, only 50 machines were available. The tanks used on September 15th reviewed mainly as adjuncts to the infantry, to crush wire and suppress German positions. In fact, according to some masterful digging by Canadian historian David Campbell, the only operational order for the tanks was to, quote, to conform to the infantry advance, end quote. If the tanks proved unable to keep up, the infantry were to carry on without them. These are important distinctions, and it is easy to lose sight of them given the momentous occasion. In any event, Haig left it to his corps commanders to decide how best to deploy them. If we wish to see how well the tanks fared on September 15th, we'll need to narrow our focus to the battle plan itself. Without further ado, let's get to it. As mentioned earlier, Flair Corselet featured two British armies attacking in conjunction with one another. Reserve Army, 
north of the main road, and 4th Army to the south. A range left to right, 4th Army deployed 3rd, 14th, and 15th Corps with 9 divisions. On the extreme ends of the line, the Canadian Corps, part of Reserve Army, were tasked with storming Corsolet, while the New Zealanders and three British divisions were to pinch off the German defences between High Wood and Delville Wood, before advancing toward Flair. The Canadians and New Zealanders were new arrivals to the Somme. The Canadians, however, were no stranger to the Western Front, having fought in a number of battles near the Ypres salient since 1915, including Saint-Julien, Saint-Eloi, and Montsorel. By August 1916, the Corps was four divisions strong, commanded by British General Julian Bing. The Canadians arrived on the Somme in late August. Like countless British and Imperial troops, they too passed under the shadow of Albert's leaning virgin, before taking over from the Australians near Pozieres. At the far end of the battle line, the New Zealanders settled into their trenches opposite Flair. Like the Australians, the New Zealanders arrived in France after Gallipoli, and were tasked with protecting 14th Corps' flank in the main thrust, between High and Delville Woods. Major General Sir Andrew Russell placed two battalions in the front line, the 2nd Auckland on the right and the 2nd Otago on the left. Assisted by four tanks, the New Zealanders would attack across an 880-meter front and capture a lattice of trench networks northeast of Flair. Haig had pulled out all the stops for the assault. Herbert Goh's reserve army would cover the left flank, while Rawlinson pushed towards the fourth objective, or Red Line, which was a ring of villages parallel to the Albert Bapam Road. These villages being Goudecor, Le Bouf, and Morval. Meanwhile, French forces astride the Somme would push north towards Combles, thereby isolating the flank of the German defense line. If all this was achieved, the advance would be followed up by a cavalry charge beyond the Red Line, with the goal of securing Bapaume and possibly Cambrai. Before we dive into this thing, I would be remiss if I did not mention one of the major controversies surrounding the battle plan. The big question which has lingered over the years is what Haig's intentions for the attack truly were. Without a doubt, he had high expectations. Maps that indicate cavalry objectives as far away as Cambrai have provided his critics with ample evidence that he was thinking beyond reasonable means. Historians Trevor Wilson and Robin Pryor have leveled, quote, Haig's ambitions were now virtually unlimited. Nothing less than the most grandiose vision for victory developed by an army commander since Schlieffen, end quote. Such biting criticisms need not be taken out of context. Remember, Haig believed this could be the crowning effort of the year, and because of this, he needed contingency plans in the event of the German line rupturing. He was not planning to reach Cambrai in one day. September 15th would be the first stage of a broader offensive, which would unfold over a number of days if things played out as planned. Thus, the possibility of reaching Cambrai makes perfect sense. Haig would have been more open to criticism had 4th Army delivered a crushing blow only to have no follow-up scheme in place. Now I know this is a lot of information to take in, but don't fret. I posted a wonderful little map which has most of this information already on it, so be sure to visit thegreatwarpodcast.podbean.com and give it a gander. 
Zero Hour was slated for 6.20 on the morning of September 15th. Nine hours earlier, 49 tanks began their slow journey to the front. They moved at a snail's pace, with the Royal Flying Corps undertaking additional patrols to drown out the sounds of their motors. Ten minutes before zero, the bombardment from 1,563 guns rose to a terrific crescendo. Huddled in a shell hole near Corselet was Private Lance Cattermole of the 21st Eastern Ontario Regiment. Cattermole described the anxious moments before going over the top. Quote, the air over our heads was suddenly filled with the sewing and sighing, whining and screaming of thousands of shells of all calibers, making it impossible to hear anything. We stood up and I looked around behind me. As far as the eye could see, from left to right, there was a sheet of flame from the hundreds of guns lined up, almost wheel to wheel, belching, fire, and smoke. End quote. The first waves hit the breach at exactly 6.20 a.m. The barrage lifted, and nine divisions of infantry left their positions. At Corselet, battalions from the 2nd and 3rd Canadian divisions climbed from their trenches and advanced behind a curtain of artillery fire. Between bursts of roaring flame, Lieutenant A.B. Morkill recaught glimpses of the surrounding battlefield, and described it as such, quote, what villages there were are as flat as ploughed fields, and most certainly, the country is one of desolation. Unquote. It was an awesome and terrifying display of firepower, but it would not be enough to get the Canadians to the German line unscathed. Less than 100 meters from the first German trench, the artillery began to overshoot their target, allowing the Germans to man their weapons. The Canadians found themselves under fire from German machine guns, which began to tear bloody holes in their ranks. The attack was barely 20 minutes old, and the left flank was already under threat. The Canadians hit the dirt, inching forward on their bellies underneath a blanket of steel mere centimeters above their heads. Confusion manifested as company commanders lost sight of their units. To escape the torrent of fire, some men had taken shelter in craters, or used the bodies of their deceased comrades as fleshy sandbags. Terror had gripped the Canadians. Men froze, and those who stood up were riddled with bullets. It is one of war's great paradoxes. Freezing in one spot is a natural reaction to danger, and getting men to advance into a line of firing machine guns, which is safer in the long term than staying still, was no easy task. For a little over an hour, the attack was paralyzed. That was until one nameless soldier, who must have been listening for gaps in the German fire, decided enough was enough. The sight of this brave soul leaping onto the horizon and charging forward seemed to snap the rest of the men out of their daze. Whether he was an officer, NCO, or a mere private did not seem to matter. The Canadians regained their composure and began crossing the desolate battlefield, shell hole to shell hole. Meanwhile, on the opposite end of the line, the New Zealanders faced withering counterfire southwest of Flair. The New Zealand Division formed up alongside the 41st and 47th Divisions, which were given the difficult task of carrying the assault the farthest forward. The Auckland and Otago Battalions advanced across an 850-meter front, 
As they advanced, the men could see the specially marked tank lanes, wide stretches of ground unscathed by the opening bombardment. The plan was to have the tanks drive along these lanes and draw German counterfire away from the infantry. But with no tanks in sight, the infantry were given no mercy. On the left, the Otago men were held up by a concealed machine gun. It was here where Sergeant Donald Brown won his Victoria Cross, when he and his comrade, Jay Rogers, took out three German machine gun emplacements single-handedly, killing their crews and capturing the weapons intact. Unfortunately, Sergeant Brown would later be killed in the residual battles around Flair. He is buried in Warlencore Military Cemetery, just east of Le Barque. For many soldiers, the arrival of the tanks was an event like none other. Several battlefield witnesses recall hearing the tanks before seeing them. Their creaking motors seemed to drown out the roar of battle. When the first tanks emerged from the smoke, it was like a vision out of hell. A lurching steel leviathan crushing everything in its path. One of the most famous testimonies comes from Canadian soldier Donald Fraser of the 31st Battalion, who described the tank as an ungainly monster that crawled like a gigantic toad, while a New Zealander described the tank's awkward movements as that of a queer monster of iron. For many soldiers taking part in the main assault, the sight of the tanks advancing into battle provided a temporary boost. However, it should be noted that these were not the first tanks to enter the fight. That distinction belongs to two tanks which had actually gone in some hours earlier, and I want to pause and shed some light on this little-known account. Down in 14th Division sector, at the extreme right of the advance, a pair of tanks had fired up their engines and begun approaching No Man's Land. The two machines were identified as D-1 and D-5, commanded by Captain Harold Mortimer in D-1 and 2nd Lieutenant Arthur Blowers in D-5. Mortimer and Blowers were tasked with attacking a troublesome salient north of Delville Wood, codenamed the Brewery Salient. It was called the Brewery because the British had named the trenches there after alcoholic beverages, for example, Pilsner Trench, Beer Trench, and Hop Alley. D1 and D5 set off at 5.15am under darkness, with the goal of reaching the Brewery Salient and neutralizing the German positions parallel to the Longueval to Jinji Road. However, D5 had a rough time navigating the wreckage of Delville Wood, Numerous mechanical delays, which included getting stuck in a shell crater, caused Blowers to miss his link-up with Mortimer. Time was of the essence, and Mortimer could not wait any longer. Mortimer thus decided to take D1 and head out on his own. Mortimer flogged his engine, drove down a sunken road, turned north, and entered no man's land. In doing so, Mortimer became the first man in the history of warfare to take a tank into battle. As tank historian Trevor Pigeon points out, all the tanks that have operated since this day follow, in a sense, the path of D1. Mortimer took D1 along the Longueval Jinchi Road, assisted by a brave navigator who guided the tank with a flashlight. Grinding along, D1 passed by members of the King's Yorkshire Light Infantry who had filled in part of their trenches to expand the tank lane, 
which was now 100 meters wide. The Yorkshires could only watch in silence as the hulking beast thundered by in the darkness. As Mortimer approached the western edge of Delville Wood, flashes erupted along the tree line, indicating the presence of German machine guns. Bullets raked along the side of D1's hull. By this point, the preliminary bombardment had begun, and Mortimer added his own six-pounder guns to the cacophony. The King's Yorkshire Light Infantry followed close behind, and Mortimer watched as the infantry charged past with fixed bayonets and stormed the edge of Delville Wood. With the Yorkshires engaged, Mortimer turned east and managed to cover another 300 meters before a direct hit from a shell, most likely British, smashed in his sponsons and destroyed a track. Two of his crewmen were killed, and the tank was immobilized. Still, D1 continued to engage the Germans with her surviving six-pounders, until Mortimer decided to abandon the vehicle. Fortunately, the infantry advance in this sector made significant headway, and D1 was eventually recovered and brought back for repairs. But I'm sure you're all wondering how the tanks performed elsewhere, right? The short answer is mixed at best. Before they were able to take the field in force, their numbers began to be whittled down. Of the 50 delivered, 49 were deployed for the attack, and 36 made it to the front. 27 reached the German front line, but only 6 would go on to play any significant role in the fighting. German shells, and on occasion friendly fire, but more often mechanical failure, or ditching on the blasted trench-scoured battlefield accounted for the failures. Infantry testimonies do not paint the tanks in a positive light. Don't get me wrong, the men wished them well and they were impressed by the technology, but their battlefield performance left something to be desired. For example, the Canadians were able to take Corselet Sugar Factory without any assistance from the tanks, which arrived too late to take part in the battle. At the same time, the 15th, 50th, and 47th Divisions, part of 3rd Corps, had secured Highwood and Martin Peach without a single tank arriving on time. Perhaps the grossest misuse of the tank occurred in that very sector. 3rd Corps commanding officer, our old friend William Pulteney from episode 52 part 3, had ordered four of his seven tanks to enter Highwood and clear out the remaining Germans. Pulteney's divisional commanders were adamantly opposed, the most vocal of whom was Major General Charles Barter of 47th Division, the man tasked with clearing out High Wood. Pulteney seems to have lost sight of the fact that the noise generated from a 28-ton steel monster crashing through the trees would alert the Germans to impending danger. Additionally, the tank's presence will make it impossible for the British to shell the wood. Barter's protests were ignored, Pulteney sent in a pair of tanks, which were immediately snagged by the undergrowth. Outside the wood, two more tanks were sent around to flank it from the center and right, but the absence of suitable tank lanes meant they could only go so far before being ditched. The 47th Division thus had a difficult time in subduing the German defenses in the wood. It was total chaos, with one of the tank's gunners mistakenly shooting dozens of his own men in the confusion. In after-action reports, Major General Barter took responsibility and resigned. Pulteney, however, remained in place as corps commander. 
To be fair, it was not all doom and gloom. In the first battle with infantry, artillery, and tank arms, there were some positives. The best results occurred at Flare, where ten tanks had been concentrated. These tanks were organized into four groups, Group C to Group F. Three tanks, D6, D16, and D17, played an active role in assisting the New Zealanders storming of the village, although it is more accurate to say that it was the infantry which helped the tanks. The opening bombardment had reduced Flair to a pile of ruins which stood no more than shoulder height. The Germans had the fight taken out of them, which allowed the New Zealanders to enter the thoroughfare faced with minimal resistance. D6, D16, and D17 entered Flair just after 8 o'clock in the morning on September 15th. A British pilot flying above watched as the tanks rumbled into town and dispatched the following message, quote, Tank seen in the main street of Flair, going on with large numbers of troops following, end quote. This simple message was immediately transposed by the British press. A few days later, newspapers across England ran the sensational headline, quote, A tank is walking up the high street of Flair with the army cheering close behind, end quote. Accompanying the headline was a powerful illustration of D-17, shrouded in smoke as it ground its way through the village. Like the infantry, the British public were finally seeing a tank in action, giving them some much-needed encouragement. However, the truth of the situation as revealed by late historian John Terrain was a bit more prosaic. According to Terrain, D-17's arrival in Flair was hardly something to celebrate. Her driver had exhausted her engine just to get there, and D-17 would need hours of repairs before heading off again. Terrain also points out that British infantry were in the process of gathering prisoners and forming them into columns ready to be marched to the rear, so the probability is that this was the large number of troops noted by the airmen. Of the three aforementioned tanks, D-6, D-16, and D-17, it was D-6, commanded by Lieutenant Charles Leggy, which holds the distinction of being the tank to advance the furthest on September 15th. Alongside a repaired D-5, Leggy managed to lead the two tanks as far as Gouda Corps. The infantry had been held up by a German counter-bombardment on flare, meaning D-5 and D-6 were on their own, dueling with a pair of German artillery batteries. Both tanks caused significant damage to the German guns, but received substantial hits themselves. D-5 was knocked out first, forcing Leggy and D-6 to fight on alone. Leggy's tank took serious damage. Although most of the fragments bounced harmlessly off her hull, the thin armor near the sponsons proved vulnerable to damage. One of Leggy's gunners was blinded when a round entered through the sponson and exploded inside. Leggy sought cover in a shallow valley between Flair and Gutacor, but reprieve was only temporary. As D6 climbed out of the valley, she emerged in full view of three German guns and was knocked out by a direct hit. Seven of her crew scrambled out, three of whom made it back to Flair, but Leggy was shot and killed alongside two of his men. One man was captured, while the eighth died inside the burning machine. 
Lieutenant Charles Leggy was buried by the Germans near his smoldering tank, who later returned his will and possessions to London via the Red Cross. Leggy's grave was eventually lost in further fighting, but his name is recorded on the imposing memorial to the missing at Teepval. For the last bit of this week, I want to swing back around and talk a bit more about the Canadian assault on Corselet, because I feel it does not get enough attention in the Canadian experience of the war. For many Canadians, Vimy Ridge marks the high point of Canada's war, but I would argue that Corselet deserves equal recognition. The assault on Corselet was led by the 2nd Canadian Division, with six tanks in support. After weathering the stifling German counterfire, the Canadian brigades converged on the vaunted sugar factory, a heavily fortified position bristling with machine guns. The sugar factory formed the nucleus of a larger German position, which was integrated into a maze of trenches, earthworks, and other intact civilian structures. In addition, Corselet itself was heavily fortified, honeycombed with cellars and dugouts. As we saw earlier in the episode, the Canadians were pinned down soon after going over the top. By 6.45 that morning, they were pressing the attack once again. By 7, the first German trenches had been taken, and three battalions were closing on the sugar factory. The fighting here was confusing and desperate. Although the Canadians made good progress, their casualties mounted steadily. The survivors were in no mood for mercy, and this was not an aberration. According to Private Lance Cattermole, his unit was under orders to take no prisoners. In a widely publicized account, Cattermole attested to the savagery of the fighting near the sugar factory. Quote, Suddenly, we came upon an enemy trench to our left. In keeping with our no-prisoners order, this trench was being mopped up and the occupants eliminated. The trench was already half full of dead enemy, and here and there, little columns of steam rose in the cool morning air, either from the hot blood let out, or from the urine I understand is released on the death of any human body. Two Canadians stood over the trench, one on the parapet and the other on the parados, and they exterminated the Germans as they came out of their dugouts. Cattermole then testifies further, saying, quote, One young German, scruffy, bareheaded, cropped hair, and wearing steel-rimmed spectacles, ran, screaming with fear, dodging in and out among us to avoid being shot, crying out, Nine, nine! He pulled from his breast pocket a handful of photographs, and tried to show them to us. I suppose they were of his wife and children, in an effort to gain our sympathy. It was all to no avail. As the bullets smacked into him, he fell to the ground motionless the pathetic little photographs fluttering down to the earth around him. End quote. The intensity of the fight had reduced the factory to a mass of crushed masonry. Eventually, German defenders were subdued and special mopping-up battalions moved in behind the main advance. These battalions had the grim job of clearing out remaining resistance, often throwing grenades down dugout shafts when their German occupants refused to evacuate. By 9 a.m., advanced units had pushed ahead to the outskirts of Corselet. To the right of the advance, the corselet martin Peach Road had been secured by the 22nd Battalion. 
to exploit any potential success at Corselette, Bing had held back a large body of reserves near Cantomaison. With the sugar factory and main road now under Canadian control, Bing ordered these reserves to the front, where they would take the attack on in to Corselette itself. Two kilometers of blasted terrain separated the infantry from Corselette. There was time for battalion commanders and their officers to make only a quick survey of the ground they had to cover. There was no time to build jumping off trenches, and with the tanks floundering in the mud, the infantry would be going in alone. Three battalions were given the task of capturing Corselette. The 25th and 26th battalions, made up of maritimers from Nova Scotia and New Brunswick, were to assault the village from the left, thus dislodging it from the German defenses along the Zollerin Redoubt. On the right, the vaunted 22nd Battalion, the Van Dues, would take the attack south of the village. The Van Dues were an all-French-Canadian unit, the name Van Du being a play on the French pronunciation of 22, Van Deux. The two kilometers to Corselette was in the words of one survivor, the longest and bloodiest half-mile ever faced by troops. The 25th, 26th, and 22nd battalions set off across the blasted landscape and pierced the Germans' forward defensive crust, bayonets first. Splitting up into small groups, the attackers began pushing through the village. Every house, cellar, dugout, trench, and rubble heap was searched for Germans and booby traps. The fighting inside Corselette was grisly, so much so that I don't want to repeat any of the gory details here, but rest assured some of the accounts will make your stomach turn. In the words of one witness, the fight was, quote, a hand-to-hand, no-weapons-barred combat, bayonets, rifle butts, shovels, feet, teeth, all came into play, end quote. Corselette was engulfed in black smoke and it would take several more hours before the last German defenders were finally subdued. The capture of Corselette was a stunning success, especially when you consider this was the Canadian Corps' first major engagement on the Somme. But what makes this story all the more impressive is that the 25th, 26th, and 22nd Battalions fought off an unimaginable 17, yes, 17 German counterattacks against the village over a four-day period without the assistance of tanks or heavy artillery. The Canadians fought in isolated pockets, supported by machine guns, and relied on their rifles to take care of the rest. According to Canadian historian Tim Cook, the two German regiments involved in these counterattacks lost nearly 70% of their combat strength. In the end, the battle for Corselet had cost the Canadian Corps some 7,230 casualties but unlike so many other engagements, the Canadians could point to their success. I should also make clear that this was not the only victory on that day. British and New Zealand forces completed their objectives as well, capturing Martin Peach and Flair. But the key villages, namely Morval, Les Bouffes, and Goudicourt, remained beyond reach. In total, British losses, including Canadians and New Zealanders, amounted to 29,376 men. By the end of September 15th, the British had pushed forward about 2,500 metres, and 1,000 metres further than that in the Flair sector. In other words, 
The territory gained was about twice that gained on July the 1st, and at about half the cost in casualties. Before we put a bow on this week, I want to end off with a couple of notes about the tanks, since it was their performance which has garnered the most interest. The tank performance at Flare Corselet was mixed, and I don't feel the controversy surrounding their deployment holds up to any close scrutiny. Collectively, the tanks had little impact on the battle, and it is not too far of a stretch to suggest that had they not been there, the battle would not have played any different. All this talk about the tanks being wasted, I feel, is misguided. To argue misuse is ascribing the tank to a larger role than the generals ever intended. Douglas Haig had to see if the tank could be a valuable addition to the BEF, and the only way to do that was to see how they performed in battle. Only after this first step had been taken could careful thought be given to their future tactical handling, and more attention paid to their armor and mechanics. In the end, the tanks did not have a promising debut, and few would argue against that. Nevertheless, Haig immediately ordered another thousand. Alright, that's about it for this week. As always, be sure to check out our website at thegreatwarpodcast.podbean.com. There you can find a list of sources and contact information if you wish to get in touch with me. Listener feedback is greatly appreciated, so if you have any questions or comments, you can follow the show on Twitter at Great War Podcast, or email me directly, thegreatwarpodcast at outlook.com. If you enjoyed this episode, feel free to leave us a review on iTunes. This is a quick and easy way to help grow the show, as the more reviews we have, the higher we'll place in the standings. This will ensure I never stray too far from my laptop and keep working on new episodes. This has been episode 63 of the Great War Podcast. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you again shortly.